So it took me six years to get my undergrad. Um, now, in part, so it was a five-year program, okay? Um, so it took me a while and uh, two different universities. And when I got to the end of year number six and had satisfied all the credit requirements and then some and um, all the distribution requirements and hours and everything possible, uh, we came up to the time of graduation. And uh, unfortunately, I did not go to my graduation ceremony. Uh, no one in my family was going to come, which will tell you something about my family. And uh, it cost a bunch of money that I didn't have. And so I thought, and I went to a university uh, with 36,000 students. And so I thought to myself, why am I going to go sit in a hot field for four hours and pay a bunch of money to sit in a hot field when no one's going to be there for my graduation anyway? And so I skipped on that. And uh, so my final interaction with the University of Washington was walking into the registrar's office and filing the paperwork for a review of credits for graduation. That's the way they do it there. And so we, when you think you're done, you go in and you fill out a little piece of paper and you turn it into the registrar. And then she says to you, thank you very much. The university officials will review your credits. And if you qualify for graduation, they will put your diploma in the mail between one and three months from now. And uh, even if you go through the graduation thing, there's, there's nothing in there anyway. I should have done graduation, by the way. It would have helped me. And, and here's why. It's because that's my last interaction. The lady says, if you qualify, we'll send you something between one and three months from now. And uh, so I woke up the next day, and I just... I, I knew they were going to find something somewhere. But as far as I knew, all the credits were taken care of, all the classes were met, but it's, look, it's been six years of my life, and I just couldn't let go of the fact that they would find something somewhere and call me in mid-September and say, actually, you have another year to go. And so all summer, everyone's coming up to me, how does it feel to graduate? How does it feel to be done? And uh, I'd say something like, oh, pretty, pretty good. Because inside, what I'm really thinking is, I don't know if I've really graduated. I think I had actually moved on and started my next job in Nebraska before I got that little thing in the mail, which I still have, by the way. Uh, I lived the entire summer not really believing that I had graduated. I thought, I, I, I don't, unless I have that paper in my hand, I, I will not have confidence. We're looking at a passage today where a man came to Jesus and asked him to do something for him. And Jesus said, I've done the thing that you asked. And Jesus sent the man away in such a way that there was no way for him to verify whether the thing had happened or not for more than a day. Jesus sent the man away with the same two things that you have. His own words and a complete inability to verify with certainty whether or not they're trustworthy. And so if you're not careful, even as a believer, especially as a believer, you will live your life the way that I spent my summer thinking, ah, probably graduated, but not really being able to put your weight down until you know or receive the real thing.
we're going to take a look at um, we're take a look at two things this morning. One of them is uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of background. Why is it that Jesus is so mean, or at the very least confusing, so much of the time? Why, why is he messing with this poor man in that way? And then secondly, I want us to see what we can learn about our own spiritual lives from this official and his son. So firstly, um, why is Jesus so mean? And by the way, I'm going to have this conversation now because it's only going to get worse. Next week, if you come back, you will hear me talk about how Jesus entered a public bath with hundreds of hurting people and healed one and walked out. And uh, if we ever make it to chapter 6, um, you'll hear that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And they come back and they want to make him king. And Jesus says, you're coming because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And walks away. That um, in the Gospel of John, also in the Gospel of Mark, by the way, uh, Jesus begins um, challenging more and more of those who believe in him. Let's take a look at um, signs. You may have noticed in the last verse of this passage, it says this. Now, this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Do you remember the first sign? Water into wine was the first sign in John chapter 2. So this is the second sign. John is counting the signs. The question is, what is a sign? What is a sign? What is John talking about? Think literally. Think freeway sign. You're, dri- you're coming back from the west side. You're driving on H1, and there's that big green thing over the freeway. What does a sign do? A sign points you the way to the real thing. So I'm going to ask an even more stupid question. Is the sign the real thing? So you're driving down the freeway, all these big green signs, this way to H201, Honolulu, this way to H1, the airport, this way to H3, over to Kaneohe. When you get there and you stop under the sign, take a picture of yourself with the sign, the sign, H201, Honolulu, is the sign Honolulu. Okay, hopefully this is not complicated. In John's gospel, the signs point you to the real thing. But they are not the real thing, and no one understands that. What are the signs? So far, Jesus turned water into wine. Today, he healed a man's son from a day's journey away. I talked in um, John 2 about how um, there's two stories in John chapter 2. There's water into wine and then the cleansing of the temple. I'm going to come back to this in a second. These two stories are a, a billboard of what Jesus' ministry is about, what Jesus is here to do. And the first one, his first sign, water into wine, it's a sign that, look, we live in a broken, empty world. What we have to drink is water. And Jesus is going to fill us up more than we could ever imagine with overflowing joy. He's going to heal all of our wounds. The wine, the healing of the sun, 
is a sign that points us to the real thing. What is the real thing? The real thing is Jesus. Jesus is what fills up all the emptiness of your life like a good glass of wine. Jesus, his own person, is what heals all of the wounds, your ailing children, your hurts and dysfunction of the world. And so um, the wine, the healing, are signs that point us towards the real thing. But they're, in a sense, not the real thing. A friend of mine in uh, another part of the world, I was chatting with him on the phone this last week, and um, he was sharing with me that he has just figured out for the first time in his life, he's married, that uh, when his wife is upset, buying her stuff is actually not what she wants. That, um, that, it's, that she wants more than a nice vacation or a new ring or some flowers. What she wants actually is him. What she wants is um, his heart and soul and mind and strength. That, um, that gifts are an important part of most relationships, and they're a, they're a sign of the real thing. And so Jesus is concerned about the emptiness and the hurt in our lives, and he's going to answer some of that as a sign that he's the real thing. And it works the other way around, that Jesus wants the real you. And so as long as you or I or these poor disciples are more focused on the sign itself Jesus wants more than that. He wants your real love. He wants you, your heart and soul and mind and strength. It is not enough for Jesus um, to get a new ring or a big screen TV or a nice vacation from you or put Christianly. It's not enough for you to live. uh, He's not satisfied with you living a chaste life or following all the rules. Or having obedient children, or an organized checkbook, or your regular tithe check. That those, in a sense, those are signs of a deeper reality that what he wants is your heart and soul and mind and strength. You can think of it again from your perspective. When you evaluate your life, how do you know that things are going well? And uh, if we're honest, for most of us, things are going well when we have the stuff that we want. And again, it could be worldly stuff like um, vacations and health uh, and career advancement. It might even be Christian stuff like personal holiness and obedient children, uh, a daily quiet time. I did well today. I didn't sin, and I had a quiet time. It was a good day. That's, it's not bad stuff. What Jesus wants to know that I have your heart and your mind and your soul strength. This is also why Jesus tends to be, in the Gospels and in your life, more interested in process than product. This is what I'm trying to say. That we think, did I do what I was supposed to do today? And he thinks, did they grow today? Which is why he may and often does withhold from you what you want. 
which is sometimes that vacation and sometimes that's personal holiness. He may keep that from you because he wants you instead. We may um, see in this passage today and in the chapters to come that uh, all of the believers in Jesus' time and the disciples especially, and maybe we, even we ourselves, have a natural tendency to settle for the sign rather than the real thing. And so to create some space between the sign and the real thing helps clarify the difference. So the Honolulu sign is not in Honolulu. Well, it is because the entire island is the city and county of Honolulu. But we all know downtown Honolulu and the sign's like 10 miles away. It helps us know it's not the real thing. And if you did get everything you wanted, even if it was all good Christian stuff, it would probably destroy your spiritual life. I was, um, my son got a, uh, a Lego scorpion in the mail from grandma last week, and so we put it together, and so now there's a newfound fascination in scorpions, and uh, so we had to do an internet search for videos about scorpions and scorpion stings and all this kind of stuff, and the first thing that comes up is um, this video, it's a story of um, how this guy got stung by a scorpion uh, when he was a child, and I didn't notice that the, the, um, the ownership tag, so, so there's, the, there's the title, I got stung by a scorpion, and below it in the little words it says, who posted the video? I missed that it said LDS youth. It was a Mormon video where the guy told the story about how his parents told him to wear shoes, but he didn't, and so he got stung by a scorpion, and he hurt himself, and God is like this, and he tells us what to do, and if we just do it, we'll have great lives. Isn't that great? And then it kind of closes with the warming music and the... And the, the Jesus Church of Latter-day Saints logo. And um, I've been a Christian long enough that that stuff really creeps me out. Because it creeps Jesus out. You can all wear your shoes all the time and avoid all the scorpion strings, and you'd be sick, angry people with no personal love for Jesus. The sobering thing for us, I keep mentioning this, is that this is specifically directed to us who are believers. Let's take a look at the first two verses. So we talked about verse 54, what a sign is. That's where I got all that. Uh, verses 43 through 45. After two days, he, Jesus, departed from Galilee. If you were here previously, this means that there's, we've just finished the story of the woman at the well. So Jesus passes through Samaria, which is a little bit like a hostile foreign country. And has an interaction with the woman at the well and all the Samaritans who live in the town of Sychar. And then after two days there, he departed to Galilee. And it says this, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Well, where's his hometown? It's Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so when he came to Galilee, no one gave him any honor. Right? No, that's actually not what it says. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. This is one of these really complicated passages in John where no one knows what to do because Jesus says, no one gives me honor, and then he arrives and they give him honor. Well, if you've read John a couple times and you're following his flow of thought, 
we now think. We hear Jesus' statement. He himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And then they say, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And you're supposed to think to yourself, wah, wah. Um, because they think they're welcoming him. And the whole point is they're not really. In fact, the statement, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown, that's really the title page for the next four chapters where Jesus is going to expose to the Galileans themselves more and more just how unwelcoming they really are. Uh, And it begins in this passage today. Um, That in John, as well as Mark, we see all of these, um, the tendency is to have these warm, heartwarming stories when Jesus interacts with Gentiles, people who are not God's people. The woman at the well, uh, the Samaritans in Sychar, Jesus, come. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then he acts with his own people, and um, it becomes more and more apparent that they don't really receive him. That we may honor Jesus and welcome him with our lips, and yet he is going to um, challenge us in our devotion more and more. Um, Some of you may have this experience that people ask you to tell your Christian story, and uh, you're not really sure when it was that you actually became a Christian, because we all know what you're supposed to say is, I was really messed up and on drugs, and then this amazing moment happened, and uh, I believed in Jesus, and now my life has been amazing forever. And in reality, what usually happens is, well, uh, I grew up in a Christian household, and so I believed as a child, so I've always been a Christian, but then I got to high school, and there was this massive part of Christianity that I was just really not engaging with, and the Lord brought me through a really hard time, and I came to see it, and I really grew, and I came to him in a way that I'd never been before, and I thought to myself, I've always thought I've been a Christian, but maybe not, because now, whoo, and then I got to college. And there was this whole other part of my Christian life that I had never even realized before, but I was just not functional, and the Lord brought me through this really hard time, and finally I saw it, and wow, I'd always thought I was a Christian, but... Now is the real deal. And then later on, I got married and I had kids. You kind of get the idea that what we should expect in Jesus' ministry to us is the same two things we see in John 2, water into wine and cleansing of the temple, that Jesus is going to come into your life and make water into wine. He's going to fill up all the brokenness in the wounds of your life, and he's going to make whips, and he's going to not believe your devotion, and he's going to challenge you. And help you see stuff about yourself that you haven't seen before. Begins that in John chapter 2. The next thing is he interacts with Nicodemus who says, Jesus, we know. And Jesus says, you don't know. Uh, And then so Jesus continues on his mission. Um, Our relationship with Jesus is a little bit like um, the cake song. You tell me that you love me so. You tell me that you care. But when I need you, baby. You're never there. How many of you guys know that song? Okay, so that worked for this half of the room. <laughs> but just for the record, beginning a song with a dial tone is like the greatest thing ever because now every time I hear a dial tone, I think about that song. Anyway. Let's take a look at... Um, Jesus' relationship with this official and his son. So Jesus is um, believing his devotion, but not really. And he's going to make water into wine and heal all the wounds of his life, but also challenge him. 
And so we read this, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, Jesus did, where he had made water into wine. So John is reminding you of this, what I've been reminding you of what happened in chapter 2. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus came from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And what happened at that moment, I cannot imagine. Because the official has been quite clear that that's not what he wants. He wants Jesus to come to his house. And Jesus just says, go, your son will be healed. And in this moment, Jesus is accomplishing both of his missions at the same time. The first one is to heal the man's son. If you've been with us recently, uh, you know that we're praying for um, the son of our partner pastor in Tokyo, Toa, who a month ago uh, attempted to do a backflip and cracked his neck and um, has been struggling to regain motion ever since then. And by the way, I got an email this morning that um, the fingers in his right hand are moving a little bit, uh, which is huge. Um, But knowing them and praying for them has reminded me and softened my heart about how desperate a thing it is to have your own child suffering. As, uh, you know, in in Samus' case, that's the pastor's name, um, the whole world is praying for his son. So I got the email from Samus, since he and I know each other, he sent out to a bunch of people. One of our elders, Bill Burkhalter, before I had a chance to tell him about what happened to Toa, he heard it from his daughter, Brittany, who lives in Paris, who heard it from other missionaries there that um, as soon as this thing happened, the shockwave went around the world and people who know this family around the entire globe are praying for Toa. And it's entirely possible that uh, what was happening in this situation is something similar, that everyone, this man is an official, most people probably know him, knew of his son in the situation. It's entirely possible that Jesus is speaking to this man with an entire crowd gathered around, knowing Jesus What will you do about this man that we know and his son that we love? Just as if Jesus were to enter this room now, probably do a lot of things like fall down and the sorts of other things that people do when they meet Jesus in the Bible. But I'm sure before too much time went past, we would ask him to heal Toa. And would we not have asked him to heal the Harbin's nephew in San Diego? the little baby with cancer a few months ago? Or any of the other things that we pray about Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Jesus, what will you do? And so this is a good reminder for us that um, these things really matter. That that is, uh, just like water into wine, part of Jesus' ministry to fill up all of the brokenness of the world. That the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a whole book on that, by the way, on my bookshelf back there. Um, If you interact with the world 
is if everything is happening positive all the time, I have good news for you. There's a better way to live. You should get the book and read it. Because part of honesty is recognizing the brokenness and emptiness and hurt in situations like these and knowing that Jesus cares and he's going to do something about it. And so Jesus heals the man's son. But just as we've been saying, I've been driving at this, um, this whole time, that Jesus has a secondary mission. That to heal Toa, to heal the official son, is a good thing. And there's something um, even more important to Jesus. And that's to heal our spiritual health. And so Jesus just says, go, your son will live. He knows this man, and he's drawing him out. So what's probably happening here is this man, he's, he's a Jewish person, and he's heard of Jesus and um, believes that he's probably able to do remarkable things. He's heard of such things in the past, like water into wine and the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. And if he goes to him, he might just be able to get Jesus to come to his home, and he could see Jesus do something for him. The man is desperate. His son is hurting. He will do anything. And if the Jesus thing will work, we'll try that too. It's not a bad way to interact with Jesus. It's just not sufficient. And one of the things that makes that clear is that there is um, there's another story, another very similar story of a different situation in the Bible from Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to read some of it. When Jesus entered Capernaum, this is the same area, by the way, a centurion, that's a Roman official. This is not one of God's people, by the way. That's significant to the story. A centurion came forward to Jesus and appealed to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And the centurion said to Jesus, Go, let it be done as you have believed. Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. It's a similar interaction. It's the same result. The man comes to Jesus, asks him to heal someone. Jesus says, he's healed. Go ahead and head on your way. And the man goes. But the content of the interaction is entirely different. The centurion says to one, I am not worthy you to come and enter my home. Whereas the Jewish official says, I need you to come to my home. Why would the centurion say, I'm not worthy to have you come to my home? Well, maybe if we just start by going back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God who are born, 
not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus will heal your wounds. But if you internalize in your guts who he really is, you will be blown away that we even have the opportunity to speak with him, which we do, by the way. That's a huge part of the gospel, that we are welcome, and he will come to your house, and he will eat with you. But it's helpful to not begin presuming that that will happen because he is the full glory of the Father who made everything. Forget the president or the queen of England. This man, the Hawaiian Islands were his idea, okay? And he thinks this is what it looks like. And so the first thing to know is to interact with him with awe and humility. That the centurion, though not an Israelite or believer, thought of Jesus that way. Look, it would be great, but I'm not even worthy to have you come to my house. But thank you for speaking with me. Rather than, come, come quickly. Don't you understand how important this is? But secondly, the centurion himself gives a little sermon about authority. Because he believes that Jesus is a man of authority. He says, look, look, I understand what authority is about. I'm a man of authority. People tell me what to do. I tell other people what to do. They do it. You have all authority in heaven and earth. All you need to do is tell my son to be healed, my servant, and it will happen. And Jesus is blown away because he has not seen this kind of faith in Israel, which our passage today is a prime example of. That the man um, believes something about Jesus, that he's good, that he may be able to help. Um, But there's a, a lack of recognition of who he really is and even his ability to just say, yep, he's healed. And in that moment where Jesus says, go your way, your son will live. Jesus has um, exposed him and invited him to understand himself more deeply and to step into a deeper faith. We prefer to live in vagaries where things are not entirely clear, where Jesus can probably help, and where he's probably true, and where I probably live well most of the time, and I probably sin sometimes. And what Jesus will do while healing you is um, he will push you up against a wall. He will create moments in your life where um, the the directional choices you have, have have been limited from many to two. You may go towards Jesus and away from sin. Or you may go towards sin and away from Jesus. And that's what Jesus has done in this moment. In saying, go, your son will be healed. The man can do one of two things. He can say, I thought that I believed in Jesus and I'm going to really do it. I believe this man. I am moving towards Jesus He's healed my son, and I'm going to go my way. This is tough for me, but I am putting my chips down here. The man will do what he says. Or he can say, 
anything other than that. I need you to come. He can just walk away. Anything that exposes that he kind of believes in Jesus, but when it comes down to it, not really. And in God's graciousness, he responds well. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when that began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. He did before, maybe. But he does now. And all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. Jesus created a moment of crisis in his life, exposed his indecision, and invited him to commit fully or give up the ship and at least be honest. And that's what he will do with us. Today, in response to this passage, it may be good for us to consider how much we believe Jesus' words. Um, because that 24-hour period, really, that moment, a second, 10 seconds, when Jesus says, go, your son will be healed, and the man is deciding what to do, that's my life. And if you're a Christian, that's your life. That what has Jesus said to you? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He said that. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new. And when I come back, there will not be night or mourning or crying or tears of any kind anymore. For I am the first and the last. And behold, I am alive forevermore. He says, through Paul, I am working all things for good to make you more like me, who you once were. He says in the Gospel of John, I am the, w- I am the way. I am the real deal. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. I don't know what that means, but it means something. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And many other such things. Really the whole Bible, by the way. Because Jesus himself and the other apostles in the New Testament said that the entire scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the words of Jesus. And so um, the red letter thing, that's fine. That's helpful so you can kind of know what Jesus says. They're all Jesus' words. If that's confusing, we can chat later. Everything in the Bible is what he has said to you. And how would my life, how would your life be different? If we believe those words fully and put our chips down entirely, that as um, Pascal said, you must spend your life as a wager. You're going to make a bet. Everyone will make this bet. Jesus is trustworthy or he's not. If you had advance information, not that this would be legal, but let's say for a second that it was. 
and you had advance information, American Pharaoh's going to win not just the Kentucky Derby. He's going to win the whole triple crown. Um, Boeing's going to get the long-range striker contract. What are you going to do? You're going to buy Boeing stock. You're going to buy big if it was legal. You would bet on American Pharaoh. You would not be like, well, let's put one chip here, let's put one chip here, and one chip here. The stronger your bet is, is a direct correlation with how much you trust your source. Um, I'm going to pull a, a John Piper here in closing and ask this question. If you made it to the end of your life and found out that everything that I've set up here is untrue and Christianity is not true and Jesus is not the way and Buddhism is the real thing. What would that be like? Would that train wreck your life? Would you think to yourself, what a terrible waste of a life. So wrong. Or would you think to yourself, well, it's okay. At least I got excellent retirement. I saw some cool stuff. And um, there's a sense in which, to the extent that um, you would experience your life as having been a complete waste, is the extent to which you believe Jesus is worth it. If you know that what he has said and all these examples that I've given others is true, it sets you free to live your life in such a way that you couldn't if they weren't true. And that is what Jesus is longing for from this man and from me and from you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you will sell all your belongings and move to Irian Jaya as a missionary, although it could. It might. Have you asked that question? It might mean that you stay right where you are and you live your life as a teacher or a lieutenant commander um, and you live what Paul calls a peaceful, ordinary life, but you do it in such a way where you have um, sacrificed your resources and spent your time in such a way that there's really only a payoff if Jesus is real. guess I've become so comfortable with you guys that I'm going to close this sermon with an illustration that may ruin my credibility forever. Uh, so in Star Trek V, it's the worst of all the Star Trek movies, by the way. I've seen them all, so I know. Uh, Captain Kirk is in Yosemite National Park, and he's climbing El Capitan with no ropes. And he gets about two-thirds of the way up, Spock puts on his little jet boots, grabs his hand, saves his life six inches before he smashes on the rocks. Um, and later that evening, they're gathered around the campfire, and Spock says um, something to the effect of, did it never occur to you that you might get killed? And um, Kirk, as arrogant as he is, says, I knew I wouldn't die. Even as I fell, I knew that I wouldn't die. I just don't know. I've had a sense my entire life that I would never die alone. And I wasn't alone. Now, that's stupid. Don't go climb El Capitan without ropes, okay? 
But that can be a picture of your life in the gospel. You are not going to die. The PCA, our denomination, by the way, has produced no martyrs in the century in which more Christians died for the gospel than any other. Do you know how many people, ministers in the PCA, have given their lives? None. Unless you count Paul Hill, who was executed for killing an abortion doctor, and that doesn't count in my book. So we're missing something as a denomination. I'm not saying that your life doesn't matter if you don't die. But why is it that that's not happening to any of us? And what would it be like if you knew that you couldn't really die? And what Jesus said was really going to happen. And you could just say, I too am a man under authority. And I tell people to do things and they do it. And you've said things and you're going to do it. I will go my way and believe. Let's pray.